I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview dates from some time back in the early 2000s, perhaps around 2004, 2005. It is with Dr. Patricia Cleary, who at the time of this interview was assistant professor of geosciences at the University of Wisconsin Parkside. She is now associate professor of chemistry and biochemistry at the University of Wisconsin in Eau Claire. Enjoy. As I mentioned, uh, we welcome to the morning show today for the first time uh, Patricia Cleary, Assistant Professor of Geosciences, and uh, she has been at uh, the University of Wisconsin Parkside for uh, several years, and uh, we'll be talking with her about the field of, of geosciences, essentially what used to be called geology, but uh, which has become a, a, a more uh, all-encompassing uh, discipline than, than the term geology might suggest. And uh, we'll talk about some of the interesting experiences that she had uh, aboard an ocean drilling vessel this past summer. That's the topic of her, her science night program on Wednesday evening, Adventures in the School of Rock, Life on an Ocean Drilling Vessel. Uh, Professor Patricia Cleary, we welcome you to the morning show. Thank you. Good to have you here. Uh, ahead of us uh, talking about this summer and uh, your experiences and your academic discipline, um, could we find out a little bit about um, who you are, where you come from, that sort of thing? Oh, sure. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, actually, and uh, in River Falls, Wisconsin, and I went to college in St. Paul, Minnesota at a small liberal arts school called McAllister College, and there I, uh, I explored my love of chemistry. Um, I certainly always felt like I was an environmentalist to a certain extent, but I just felt um, that it was fun to do chemistry. I know a lot of people wouldn't say that, but I do. <laughs> um, and from there, I, I went on to graduate school in California, the University of California, Berkeley, where I studied um, chemistry again. And I was in the chemistry department, but I worked with an atmospheric chemist. Uh, there, I started working on making novel devices to measure nitrogen oxides in the atmosphere with lasers, which was cool and fun. Um, and from there, I did a postdoc in England, um, which, of course, for my family was like, oh, are you going to go any farther away? <laughs> um, uh, and then I moved back to the United States, was in Philadelphia for a couple of years as also a postdoctorate researcher, and then I came to Parkside. And it, my position at Parkside is quite unique because I am a chemist or an atmospheric chemist, so I can bridge the gap between uh, just, you know, lab chemists and geoscience chemists who um, actually go into the field. And uh, the geoscience department at Parkside was certainly looking for an atmospheric scientist to broaden the scope of, of their um, education in, in Earth processes. Hmm. So when one is an atmospheric chemist, uh, when we're going to find out what an atmospheric chemist is doing on the ocean floor, <laughs> but uh, uh, when you're not on the ocean floor, what kinds of things is an atmospheric chemist studying and, and teaching about? Well, um, I, I study uh, local air quality. I do have a, a measurement um, going on presently in uh, Kenosha over the harbor. And um, I'm looking for different, the, how the chemistry changes over Lake Michigan and when it comes on land to, because we do here in southeastern uh, Wisconsin have a lot of issues with air quality, um, particularly uh, particulates. 
um, and sometimes ozone. And, and so those are the things that I, I specifically look at. Um, and atmospheric chemists generally look at chemistry that happens on Earth, um, either at the surface to, to promote um, pollution episodes, or higher up in the stratosphere and look at the processes that make the, um, the ozone hole uh, significant and things like that. But my specialty is urban air quality. I think a lot of people, I mean, even when you live in a place like Mexico City, of course, which has dreadful air quality, not that ours is anything to be particularly proud of, but it's not as bad as that. Mm -hmm. But uh, even in a place like that, of course, most of us make the, the mistake of thinking of the air as empty. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, if it were truly empty, uh, atmospheric chemists would have nothing to do and yes. nothing to study. Mm -hmm. uh, explain to us, as, as basically and simply as you can, uh, how the air, in fact, is not empty, uh, even aside from the things that we pump into the air. Otherwise, mm. in what ways is the air not empty? I mean, the air, obviously, the only, our only experience with air being a thing is usually wind and breath, right? And uh, the most important constituent of air that we use is oxygen. You know, we, you're going to suffocate if the, if the uh, air was 100% nitrogen. But, you know, it's mostly nitrogen and oxygen. Um, and then you have very small constituents or, or species in the atmosphere that may do a lot of other significantly bad things. So, um, it's mostly, you know, 99% ozone or oxygen and nitrogen. And then if you um, if you get a very very small amount of ozone, so that would be um, above 150 parts per million. So if you want to think about that in terms of um, like I like to think about that in terms of people, if I want to visualize numbers, if it's 150 parts per million, that would be 15 parts per 100,000, right? Mm -hmm. So there are about 100,000 people in Kenosha. And this would be 15 out of those 100,000 would be these um, ozone molecules, ah. right? Those would be very, very irritating to your respiratory system, those 15 out of 100,000. Wow. So, so even that minuscule amount makes a difference because yeah. of what it is. Yeah, and then just in the same way that you can smell, you know, onions cooking in the kitchen, it's not a major part of the air that you can smell, but your your nose and your um and your mucous membranes are very sensitive to a, a very small concentration. So and, and and dogs do much better than we do as far mm. as smell mm. is concerned. So you are someone who studies that kind of thing. I yeah. mean for instance levels of ozone. Uh, do you do anything aside from, is it up or is it down? I mean, the amounts of it, or are you also trying to measure sure. other more nuanced things about yeah. it? Yeah. Um, you, right now we, we have a pretty good idea of like national trends and regional trends in ozone. Um, but, and, and, and we have a complicated models to, to give some sort of predictive ability to say, okay, on this day, when it's this temperature, we're going to have ozone levels that are this high. Um, but uh, you can look at more constituents in the atmosphere to try to get a, like almost an idea of a clock. Like how long has it been out 
over Lake Michigan? And can we time, um, you know, maybe to the hour or at least within a few days of how long that processing happens and it comes back on land? And 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 you need a few more key species in the atmosphere to to begin to really watch reactions as they happen in the atmosphere. How are you using the term species? Are you using a species as molecules? Ah, yeah, interesting. Uh, I think uh, a lot of us wonder how you even measure something that's invisible. I mean, you don't go out with a butterfly yeah. net, obviously. Uh, I, are there, I suppose, sophisticated devices with which one measures something like ozone? Yeah, well, um, ozone is pretty easy to measure. Ozone um, you can you can do by um, with a, a, a regular sort of spectrometric uh, measurement. So uh, what we can do is usually uh, there are two methods that are generally used for measuring things in the atmosphere. One is sort of mass methods where you send a whole bunch of molecules through like a strong magnet or something like that and it'll, uh, the magnet will divide out different masses and you can and you can measure different things based on the, their mass. Um, or there are spectrometric methods and, and that's where you look at how different molecules interact with light. Um, so that's what I've done. I've, I've used lasers before to excite molecules and make them fluoresce. And they, I put light in, and then a different kind of light comes out, and you measure that light. Um, and the, the measurement that I use um, in Kenosha is just a very strong uh, UV or ultraviolet light beam that runs across the harbor. So it goes a very, very, very long distance to intercept a few molecules. And then I'll look at the absorption. Um, so I'll just look for the absence of some of that light in certain areas of an ultraviolet spectrum. So how is our air at the moment? It's fine. It's good. <laughs> Obviously, uh, we have had some fairly serious issues in this uh, yes. in this uh, part of the country, this neck of the woods. Uh, are you? Do you have access also to? Uh, past measurements of something like ozone? I mean... Yeah, most of the measurements are available um, online from mm. the Wisconsin DNR or uh, the EPA has databases that go back as long as they have measurements and you can troll through those and, and look at trends. But, you know, f in this area even, uh, it, the air quality has been improving significantly because of the gasoline um, re um, that they're using around here. Mm -hmm. so. Of course, one of the most contentious conversations which has occurred over the, the matter of air quality has been to what extent uh, our poor air quality is actually the result of what's going on down in Chicago, for mm -hmm. instance. Mm -hmm. uh, I suppose it is an atmospheric chemist like yourself who, uh, who is able to help make those kind of determinations about where a given metropolitan areas air pollution is really coming from is it mostly self-generated or yeah. is it the result of activity from someplace else i mean yeah. is that something you're something, in a position to determine absolutely that's something that i'm looking at um and and uh getting an idea of a clock mechanism to say if it goes out over uh lake michigan can i get an idea of the time it's been out there and when where so you need a certain amount of meteorological um, observations, and then you need a, some chemical signatures of that that air mass to to help um, watch it as it uh, as the emissions change into 
ozone because ozone isn't emitted directly. Right. You have to have the soup of, of different chemicals, including organics and including nitrogen oxide species that cook up the ozone in the atmosphere. Hmm. So that's something that uh, you're sort of in the process of studying? Yes, yes. Hmm. I had my first full campaign this summer with my instrument running well. So Very good. Well, we'll be watching uh, that, those studies with great interest, of course. Uh, I know that uh, we'll get to your uh, exploration of the ocean floor in just a minute or two. I know that uh, among the uh, different courses that you teach at Parkside are, um, of course, about the atmosphere, environmental mm -hmm. justice, uh, geoscience applications. Uh, you teach a course on global climate change. I do. I wanted to pose uh, a question to you that I have heard posed by uh, actually uh, somebody very bright who happens to uh, nevertheless be something of a skeptic when it comes to global climate change, um, putting forth the point that uh, is probably worth uh, discussing, that in terms of a sophisticated uh, study of this, there is some limit to what we know in terms of, uh, of cl climate patterns, because we haven't always measured climate the way we can measure climate now. And given that, uh, are we perhaps prone to making more sweeping uh, conclusions about what's going on since we're talking about a relatively brief span of time in which we have really solid data? Is that, in fact, a, a uh, something to consider in this? I think um, I think that that's a really good bridge between what I want to talk about with the ocean drilling ship because I um, people are looking at the longer term perspective that paleo um, paleoclimatologists so paleoclimatologists are looking at past climate and they're going to be drawing conclusions about what the surface temperature was on Pangaea. Um, you know, when it was uh, one full continent, when all the continents were one big continent on the planet. Um, and their models will still include a certain amount of greenhouse warming. And they're a lot more crude, and they're, they don't have as much sophisticated measurements as we do now, but a certain amount of um, climate warming is, uh, and from, from green, the greenhouse effect, it's a part of every sort of paleoclimate model because of the gr the greenhouse effect as it stands, right? So, so we understand even when we're we're trying to model past climates, millions and billions of years ago, that that has to be a certain um, uh, a certain forcing, a certain difference in temperature at the surface of the planet, so that there, there can be liquid water on the surface. Which is really crude. That's the base. You know, that's like the hammer of the measurement. Is like, okay, it's got to be there somewhere. We and know. I mean, for the planet to function, <laughs> it yes. has to be there to for some there to extent. Be life on the planet, there had to be liquid water, and you had to have an atmosphere to a certain extent that provided warming so that the surface would be above the freezing point of water. And that has always been the case on the planet because the amount, um, uh, based on the light that we get in from the sun. Uh, it wouldn't be that way. So okay. we need the Earth to be a greenhouse to some extent. Uh, yes, it always, yes. Um, and so now we're in this point where we can tell that climate is warming significantly. There are significant changes. And, and uh, obviously there's, there are um, ecosystem changes that have come about from just 
agriculturalism and, and industrialism throughout the world and just like the, the huge boom in population that you have of uh, six billion people on this planet. Um, but above and beyond that, we can we have more sophisticated measurements now that we can test even small variations in climate um, very sophisticated. So, um, for example, when Mount Pinatubo erupted, you had this global cooling event. And that is actually modeled quite well from with these global climate models. So um, I feel like the, we, we have the ability now to, to hone in on, on very small, like one or two degree change or 0.2 degree changes globe in global temperature, which is a hard average to get at. Um, pretty well, and that we can model that, it, I think that it's validating these models that are, are predicting a continued increase in temperature. I, I think one of the questions that comes up from those that are skeptical or just wonder if we're jumping to conclusions here is the, the question of, well, is it possible that, there, that some aberration occurred in the 1400s and maybe another one occurred in the 700s and just in, in the, the last B.C. century. But we don't know that because mm -hmm. nobody was out with thermometers measuring the, 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 yeah. the temperature. And what I think an interesting, um, an interesting phenomenon is that a lot of glaciologists will have observed um, some mass loss of glaciers that preceded the Industrial Revolution. Um, so that now we're seeing almost universal loss of glaciers. Um, but there were some that preceded the Industrial Revolution, um, and and there are measurements of that. But as far as the net energy balance, um, a lot of the things that go into that energy balance um, at this point, um, like uh, as far as if someone says, well, there might be something going on with the sun, and because the sun is what provides the Earth its climate um, and, and the heat for the climate, that. We've been measuring actually solar flares and solar um, activity for 400 years, more than anything else, and we hmm. understand we understand what the trends are, not necessarily what causes this 11-year solar flare cycle or something like that. Um, so, <clears throat> I I think that it's uh, there's always uncertainty in science, but that doesn't mean that the science isn't good. Hmm. In fact, I suppose a little uncertainty in science is, <laughs> is, a, is maybe a sign that it's good science. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, the, the more sort of airtight you make your pronouncements, uh, in, a, in some ways, the more suspicious mm -hmm. it is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a little bit of uncertainty, acknowledging a little bit of uncertainty is probably an ultimately healthy thing. Yeah, and it, but and it's always been a part of scientific exploration and understanding of the world to say, well, this is what we know, and then we'll always have this other idea of what we don't know. Right, and of course, what probably complicates this for much of the public as well is that you know we're having a conversation about global warming on uh, on a day when it's unseasonably cool, and mm -hmm. most of of the United States is uh, experiencing their first snowfall and record-shattering temperatures, and this and that, and of course. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a picture that even even if even if it is in the view of the science community unmistakable that we are seeing a, a global rise in temperature, mm -hmm. there are these 
other moments when exactly the opposite seems to be happening that yeah. that makes it look really complicated to and one of the, the average things, person. One of the things about um, the average temperature is that uh, it's often being seen at night where the, the warming is the most significant. Oh. So you wouldn't necessarily notice that every night has been like maybe a degree warmer since when you were whatever, five years old. Because most people are sleeping at night. But um, so that still averages out to a global temperature change where it's not something that the average human is observing. Hmm. I mean, and, and, and it's really hard to, um, it's just, it, it, it's hard to take all of this variability, which is, you know, it can be 80 degrees in Wisconsin in the summertime, it could be negative 20 in the wintertime, and to say that based on that huge range, that 100 degree range, um, that, that there are actual observables within uh, one degree. But, you know, science is amazing. We can get we can see a lot of interesting things, which um, which is why we use sophisticated instruments, computer models, all of these things to to tease out um, these details that wouldn't be observable by eye. For those of you just joining us, we're speaking to uh, Patricia Cleary, who is assistant professor of geosciences at the University of Wisconsin Parkside, joining us today on the morning show for the very first time. And uh, we're, we're talking with her today, actually, in, in anticipation of a talk, which she will give at Parkside Wednesday evening for their Science Night program. And uh, on Wednesday night, she's going to be talking about adventures in the School of Rock, life on an ocean drilling vessel. So, Professor Cleary, here's the big question of the hour. <laughs> what is an atmospheric uh, uh, chemist doing on the ocean floor? Well, that's a great question. So, as I took this odd trajectory around in my, my uh, chemistry experience into a geoscience uh, uh, department at Parkside, I felt like, you know what, I need to know a little bit more about... Um, about you know geoscience applications, um, um, the cutting edge science in geoscience, and I found out about this opportunity for earth science educators to go on the School of Rock, which is uh, a short, a two week expedition out on the Jody's Resolution, which is the American uh, or the U.S. ocean drilling vessel, um, as an educational experience to learn what they're doing on this vessel, how does it operate, all this stuff, and I felt like. That would be a great opportunity for me um, to learn more about this stuff so I can share that with my students who may or may not want to become atmospheric chemists. They might they certainly want to be geoscientists, but not necessarily atmospheric chemists. Um, and, uh, and just go out there and see what they do. And it was... It was just great. It was it was really phenomenal experience. How large a vessel is, are we talking about in terms of its size and maybe uh, who is aboard uh, the Jody's Resolution? Sure, the Jody's Resolution has been operating since 1985. It's a f over 400 foot ship, 430 something feet. Uh, and it has a huge, like, oil uh, derrick on the back. So it looks like an oil derrick, you know, th mm. in the middle of the ship. Um, and before that, it was, uh, there. the U.S. used to operate another ship called the, the Glomar Challenger. And so from the 60s on, this ship has been, um, or these two ships, these two uh, platforms have been exploring what's going on at the bottom of the ocean. So they can drill... 
um, down to an ocean floor uh, at 27,000 feet. And from there, they can drill deeper into 3,000 feet of rock. So they can drill as deep as 30,000 feet on the Jody's Resolution. Wow. So the equivalent of Mount Everest. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's so hard to get it's, your mind it's around. really hard to get your mind around. So when I was... So this drill... So, so the boat, obviously, is on the surface of the water. Mm-hmm. So this drill has to penetrate yeah. through the ocean, I mean, through the waters, down to the yeah. surface. It's, so it's not like a submarine that goes down to the no. surface. This is from the top surface of the water. Yeah. Wow. And what's interesting, well, so um, they have, you know, uh, several miles of pipe on the, that are just stacked up on half of the ship most people can't go to unless you're uh, wearing a hard hat and you're one of the, the rig floor specialist handyman guys. Um, and it's miles and miles of pipe just laying down so that they can string it up and, and send it to the bottom of the ocean. When they um, go to a site where they're going to do drilling or, or something like that. When I was on the ship there was no drilling. They were actually doing cementing. Um, but what they'll do is they have um, 12 thrusters that are usually up inside the ship. So the ship has um, over, I think, 13 holes in the bottom of it because these thrusters come down and then they they stabilize the ship. Um, So it almost feels like it's a platform or it it feels like it's at port at that point because it's very It doesn't feel like a boat anymore. Mm -hmm. A little bit. There's a little bit of a tilt to it, but not much. Hmm. And and once the the, the boat is stabilized with what they call their dynamic positioning system, then they send the um, they they call the string drill string down um, with all these these pipes and so when we got we got to the place the site where they were going to start um, cementing at around like midnight we got there and they started tripping tripping pipe they call it tripping pipe you know and they send ninety feet up um, or of a pipe up into the the derrick and then they these like three or four guys work with all this heavy machinery to thread them together and send it down and then Mm. another one and it took them eight hours they were at it until about eight or nine o'clock in the morning to do 2.6 kilometers of pipe oh wow right (laughs) so then so when while i was on the ship the cementing operation was to cement um some instrumentation that, that they had put into the bottom of the ocean called a cork. So they have a hole <clears throat> already in the bottom of the ocean, and then they put these corks in to, to cap it off. And it's usually where you have hydrothermal vents and, and, and water flowing through, but it hadn't gotten cemented properly, so they were re-cementing. And they had to put um, the pipe, which is maybe a foot and a half, two feet wide, um, into a hole in one of these corks, which is a smaller hole than they're usually. Usually they have a 12-foot diameter re-entry cone if they're re-entering a, a regular hole. This one was about three feet across. So you think about like one and a half feet into something that's about three feet, maybe four feet across. And it's 2.6 kilometers away, over a mile away, like a mile oh. and a half away. And, it's, and they don't actually... Um, use any sort of remote vehicles at the bottom they're actually moving the ship on the surface of the ocean back and forth and back and forth to get it to line up to get it to line up oh so it's like <laughs> what they said it was like it's a it's equivalent to trying to thread a needle from on top of like a second story building down to the ground down to the ground yeah because it they because that was a relatively small hole it was 
not forgiving. I mean, yeah. yeah, there wasn't room, hardly any room for error at all. Yeah. Wow. I can't imagine. It was so neat. And they thought, they thought, well, it's going to take us a while. It'll be difficult. They gave themselves like six to 12 hours for each. They had to do this twice. And it took them like two hours. They were mm. just done. And um, it, the, the, the guys that do the, the dynamic positioning are so good sometimes that um, when, they, when they go into a site, they can put down a beacon next to the the hole so that they can find it, right? And they always have to recover the beacon, so they press a button, and then it inflates something, and then it comes to the surface. And there was one guy who um, did such a good job that he would position the ship over on top of the beacon, and um, the beacon would come up through the middle of the ship in the moon pool because there's a, there's a hole in the middle of the ship where the drill string goes down. So he could, and you know, if he did this wrong, the beacon would hit the bottom of the ship, but he would get it right, and it would mm. just, like, just emerge up through the middle of the ship. <laughs> wow. I know. Now, I, I assume you were an observer. You, yes. You're just there watching with delight and wonderment, uh, you and the other educators that were aboard this ship. Yeah, well, we got to, what we got to do is play in the lab, too. Mm. So they brought all of these historic cores. So they brought, like, the second core that, that had ever been cored by the ocean drilling program, which was one that, in fact, had contained some oil. Uh, they don't drill for oil. They really do not want to drill for oil anymore. But I did see one that had some oil in it. It's really funny because you, you, you go down and you smell it, and it smells like asphalt. Hmm. Um, uh, but nowadays, um, they don't drill for oil, or they want, don't want to find oil because you can have a natural gas deposit on top, and it could burp through the, the ocean, ruin the buoyancy of the ship, and, and, and sink the ship. So they have chemists on board that constantly monitor for oil. So they're, they're, they're trying to drill in a place where there won't be oil or mm -hmm. other things that could yeah. cause problems. I mean, so this is not like one of those sci-fi movies where they're just sticking a pipe down into the ocean and horrible things happen. Yeah. Uh, Godzilla <laughs> comes out or <laughs> some huge volcano gets created. I mean, this is being done with care in terms oh, of absolutely. where this is done. One of these cores, you called yeah. it, that comes, I mean, this pipe goes into the into the ocean floor and uh -huh. comes up with stuff, filled with stuff. How, how big is one of these cores? The cores are maybe four, three or four inches in diameter. So what they'll do is that they'll put the pipe down and then they'll actually send a drill string through the middle of that. Um, and then they'll send, so the pipe might get just stay in one place and then they'll send a drill and then um, like this casing in the middle of that. And they'll use different kinds of drill bits depending on the material that they're drilling through. And then they'll pull that stuff up through the bottom or through the the it's almost like the, the piping just holds it in place. Hmm. And then they'll have a smaller collar that goes down in, drills, and pulls up mud. Mm -hmm. Most of it, you got to get through the mud in the bottom of the ocean. It's, it's ocean sediment at that point. Or they go deeper, and then they drill into basalt. They're drilling into um, uh, rock that was formed from magma. Hmm. Um, so that's what they want to They want to ultimately reach past the sediment on the surface to, to the rock that's beneath that? No, they want to do both. Oh, they do want to See, both. It depends on the expedition. So sometimes they want to look for what were the ocean conditions like? Well, what was the ocean circulation like 33 million years ago when Antarctica started to get glaciated? 
right? So I actually got to see some cores from that event that were from um, near Australia. And what the idea was that the ocean circulation changed significantly at um, what they called the Eocene-Oligocene boundary, uh, which is 33.9 million years ago. And that, that ocean circulation changing made Antarctica isolated and it got to get cold. Um, because before that, it wasn't iced over, and then all of a sudden it started getting iced over. So they mm. wanted to see if there was something in the sediments that showed a change in the deep ocean circulation. And and they do. You see this core, so it might be a meter and a half long, and the top part is like light, um, like a tannish color, and then it goes to chocolate brown. Mm. Um, so it's, it, it's visually just stunning to see this huge difference. It's, like a, difference. it's like a timeline. Yeah. Hmm. And we, and we, we know this from... I mean, it's like reading the rings of a tree, I suppose. Yeah, what's really, the other interesting thing about um, these ocean cores is that they always have, they'll have um, micropaleontologists on, in, on the ship. So they'll have a different, they have, a, you know, several different key scientists that need to be on the ship at, when they ever they do drilling operations. The micropaleontologists are the timekeepers. What they'll do is they'll um, prepare little slides and they'll look at, um, this mud under a microscope and they'll begin to identify different little tiny little fossils that you find these are microscopic fossils and they'll say okay that one was alive between 33 million years ago and 32 million years ago and this one was found between 40 million years ago and 27 million years ago. and mm. and so they'll begin to date all of them until you come up with a common time for all of those things to be alive and or just dying at the at the surface of the ocean or the bottom of the ocean hmm. so that they can time um, give the dates to these these cores and you were in the lab so yeah. you were actually able to work with some of these cores yeah directly. we got to make little slides that's really cool because these slides you know it just looks like okay it's this brown mud and then you you make a little microscopic slide and you look in the inside and it looks like disco balls those are like hmm. radiolarians and they just look like these crazy weird creatures um we also did some um foraminifera work where then you um take a big piece of mud and you and you sift it and you sift it and you wash it and you wash it until there's like a you know a few grains at the bottom of your sieve your pan mm. and then you look at it under a microscope and there are all these weird looking lobed um fossils that are actually uh from plankton, well, they can both be from things that lived at the top of the ocean or things that lived at the bottom of the ocean, and you have to hmm. try to then d identify what they are. Wow. So. Uh, I understand that you took quite a few photographs on this uh, <laughs> this expedition yes. that you're going to be sharing uh, some of them, at least some of them, probably not oh, all, yes. on Wednesday night. Yes, I have like over four or 500 photographs. What I think is interesting is when you're out on the ship, it's like they're there's this huge engineering scale. Then there's this, this interesting science that's going on. They have all these cool experiments going on that they want to do immediately after get, they get the cores out of the ocean. But then the other half, part of the experience is just, you're on a boat. You know, it's um, in the middle of the ocean. In the middle of the ocean, you don't see much. You might go outside, and someone's like, "Ooh, I saw a bird." You know, <laughs> and like, because you're not gonna see a lot of animals, um, depending on where you are. Um, and, 
it's just uh, like the colors that you see. Everything is kind of gray inside the boat. I mean, not always, but, you know, your room is gray. The halls are gray. Uh, and then you go outside, and it's blue, and it's gray. So then when you have, like, a stunning sunset, everyone's just <laughs> like, oh, you go outside. There's, like, purple out there. So, <laughs> what uh, is that color? We for- yeah. You forget. Yeah. Huh. So it's um it's a it's a weird sensory deprivation. You they well, do and this is not a boat with shush, shuffleboard, and uh, I mean it's it's it, this is not a pleasure cruiser either. I mean. No, but a lot of people have to work on this ship. You know, they'll go out for two months at a time normally. So there's a movie room, and you have to like write down um write on uh, a little board what what you're going to watch and when so mm. that everybody knows that you've reserved the room and what movie's happening that time. And there's a little, there are some computer stations. They have satellite um, communication so you can get the internet. It's kind of slow, but you can. Uh, and you can, t- you can get on the phone a little bit, but sometimes it just, it doesn't work. Some days, you know, maybe three days out, there's no phone for a while and the internet might work mm. so um it you're getting used to being somewhat out of contact too. yeah which can be interesting exhilarating frustrating all those different things i suppose that's mm-hmm. life at sea yeah well they keep you busy I, when when a normal expedition is going on people work in 12-hour shifts and you have to work opposite of your. So you, if you, if you're the paleo micropaleontologist, there's another one um, who works opposite shift as you. So you work 12 hours, and then that person will work 12 hours because they will. They when they're coring, they just work 24 hours a day. This ship mm. goes works always 24 hours. Then um, meals are at six, at noon, at six, and at midnight. Mm. And then there's cookie breaks at eight or at nine and three and <laughs> nine and three. Um, so they 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 kind of keep this regular routine going on. Oh, there's the gym too. So if you were on the ship as a scientist, you'd probably have to get up at five. You'd have to be out of your bunk and your room at six because that's when your counterpart gets off, mm. and then you're not allowed to go back in that room because right. then they they need to sleep, right? So then you have to stay away from your room, and you're probably just going to work your twelve hour shift, and then maybe watch a movie or go to the gym and go to sleep, you know. And it's day after day after day of that. And so what I heard from the people who had worked on the ship for a long time, they're like, you know, six weeks out is the worst point. It's just, it's day after day of the same schedule, this, you know, really tough work environment. Um, And and you've you've seen the same 130 people the whole time. And even probably only half of those people because everybody's on shift. Right. Um, so they're starting to get on your nerves, and <laughs> you just feel like it's never going to end. But then it does. And you were on this for three weeks, I think. Yeah, right? two weeks. Or two weeks. So right. that was just perfect. <laughs> I, was, I was happy. I was like, I'd go back on that boat any day. Wow. Is this, uh, how did you secure this opportunity? Did you have to somehow apply for it? Yes. Um, they have a, uh, there's an education outreach program for the um, ocean drilling program. So now it's called the Integrated Ocean Drilling Program program IODP and as a part of that there's the Deep Earth Academy and so they'll provide posters and um, educational materials for uh, for high school teachers for college teachers for um, even for elementary middle school applications so they what they do with the educators that come on board is that they use us to develop their educational materials and their outreach 
but we get to go be on the boat for two weeks. So I think that's a that's a good uh, partnership there. Absolutely. Sounds like a wonderful time, and you're going to have a million things to talk about Wednesday night. I know. I, I don't know how I can. I think I, I'm also trying to get a, a video conference with the ship. I don't oh. know if that's set in stone yet because we got to make sure all the software works, but I should get maybe about 10 or 15 minutes to hear from them and what they're doing right now. Oh, that would be exciting. Yeah. That would be exciting. Do you, uh, do you happen to recall the location of your talk Wednesday night? I, didn't, I neglected to write that down. Greenquist 103 on Parkside Campus. It's either 103 or 101, but I'm pretty sure it's in room 103. So. And that's Wednesday evening, and that begins at 7 o'clock? Yep. Very good. I uh, I thought we'd spend some of the hour, but uh, I see we are just about out of time. But uh, I was intrigued by this term geosciences. And once upon a time, uh, you would have been a professor of geology rather than geosciences. Yeah, so I think I think if that was the the case, I probably wouldn't. They wouldn't even allow me in the department because I'm certainly not a geologist. <laughs> right, not not a rock not a rock person the no. way we think of geologists. And of course, now geosciences. You said that really what this discipline is all about is studying. Earth processes, which yeah. I think uh, is is uh, almost a poetic way to put it. It's almost like earth, wind, fire, you know, that sort of thing. You got the earth part. I've got the wind part. We just need a vol- volcanologist um, in the department to get the fire going. But um, it's we're understanding more and more that how much of earth earth processes are interrelated. And so you've got the plate tectonics, you've got the rock formations, you've got sediments and um, forming over this huge the 4.5 billion year life cycle of the the Earth, um, and they're interrelated with how soils form just at the surface and how those soils may become rock mm. later, and how water will change the landscapes and um, well, and how we drill down. 30,000 feet to study <laughs> what the atmosphere used to be like. I oh, mean, absolutely. I mean, we, we unlock the secrets of the atmosphere in the ocean floor. Ah, I mean, it yes. doesn't get more wonderful than that. Uh-huh. Uh, Patricia Cleary is Assistant Professor of Geosciences at the University of Wisconsin-Parkside, and again, her Science Night uh, presentation is going to be this Wednesday evening, 7 o'clock. The public uh, is invited. It's uh, free of charge. She'll have all kinds of photographs to share as well about her uh, about her uh, uh, experience aboard the Jody's Resolution this summer. Uh, Patricia Cleary, this has been great, great fun, and I hope that we will have more conversations on the morning show in the future. I do thank you for joining me today. Wonderful. Thank you for having me.